0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever Happened to Christmas? That's a song that was sung by Frank Sinatra many years ago and then redone, covered by Amy Mann and others And the lyrics go like this Whatever happened to Christmas? It's gone and left no traces. Whatever happened to the faces or the glow? Whatever happened to Christmas? To the Christmas way of living? Whatever happened to giving the magic in the snow? Remember the sight and the smell and the sound? And remember hearing the call? Remember how love was all around? Whatever happened? to it all. What did happen to Christmas? Why is it offensive these days to say Merry Christmas? Why is it that we're forced to say in some places, not Merry Christmas, but season's greetings or happy holidays? That every single year is becoming more and more the case. A few years ago, the mayor of Denver, Colorado, announced that the phrase Merry Christmas would be removed from all of the public buildings. There was a downtown display that had Merry Christmas, and he decided by decree that happy holidays or season's greetings would take the place of Merry Christmas. That was until there was enough public outrage that caused him to recant that decision, which he did. There was a small town in Indiana where the... uh, postal service was delivering christmas mail and one guy was out by his mailbox and he said to the postal worker merry christmas and the postal worker said i'm not allowed to say that i can tell you season's greetings but it's come down from our supervisors the postmaster general even though we have a special dispensation this year and we can say merry christmas but there's a cutoff date he said And he said his words, the staff is not allowed to use the C word. The C word, that's what Christmas has become, the C word. One store worker said, and I'm quoting, Since I've been working in customer service for the past 14 years, I've learned the hard way to always say, Happy Holidays. I've had my head chewed off one too many times to ever say Merry Christmas again. A couple of school districts in Florida and in New Jersey have banned Christmas songs from any of their school festivities. And they were very specific. We don't want any songs that have words like God, Christ, or angels in them at all, during the holiday season. One high school in Maplewood, New Jersey, took the additional step of including instrumental versions of Christmas songs. So throw out the hallelujahs already, but you can't have any instrumentation of Silent Night. And they said any instrumentation that would include these words, God, Christ, and angels, if they were sung. The mayor of Somerville, Massachusetts, has issued a public apology for accidentally referring to the town holiday party as a Christmas party. Whatever happened at Christmas? And why is it that Christmas, of all of the holidays with names in them, why is that the name, the holiday, that's offensive? How come in February, when it's Valentine's Day, we're not forced to say, Season of Love Greetings? It's still okay to say, Happy Valentine's Day. Or the third Monday in January, Martin Luther King Day, we don't say, Civil Rights Seasons Greetings. Or in October, on Columbus Day, nobody has to say, Happy Exploring Holiday. Why is it that Christmas, we can't, why is Christmas offensive? Well, the answer is easy. The name of Christ is in Christmas, that's why. And Jesus Christ as a person is himself offensive to many people. Because it wasn't Valentine or Columbus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, it was only Jesus Christ who said that. And Jesus Christ himself and his message has become offensive. That's what happened to Christmas. Well, this month leading up to Christmas, what I'd like to do is look back. Look back and through the pages of Scripture, the prophecies like Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, into the New Testament when Jesus was born. All of that leading up to Christmas and compare that with some of the traditions that we've brought along with us in our holiday season. Today, we want to look at Christmas through the writings of Paul the Apostle to the church at Galatia and ask this question, why is Christmas so special? Why is it so unique? Why is it that we do make a big deal out of it? Even though we don't exactly know the date Jesus was born, why do we make a big deal out of his birth? Well, we want to look at that. Galatians chapter 4, I'm picking up in verse 4. But, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of... As sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, or Papa, Daddy, Abba, Father. The first thing that Paul makes note of in these verses about the coming of Christ, we call it Christmas, is that it came with precision. Precision notice the phrase and when the fullness of the time had come now let me paint a picture of the background of paul's letter paul has been dealing with the history of israel as he's writing this letter to that little church in galatia he's he's reminding of the, of their past history especially the law that came by moses and he's saying the law was great it served a purpose But now it's time to graduate from the law into a new era, a new covenant, the age of grace. But there were some in that church, legalistic believers, who were resisting any movement away from the law, the law, the law. And Paul refers to the fullness of the time. That's the coming of Christ. And it's a, it's a phrase that refers to an end of a period of preparation and a new era is dawning, a new day is dawning, and that is the new covenant. Which started with the coming, the birth of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the time. Jesus' birth was a hinge, an historical hinge. Time changed. The world reckoned time differently after Christ. So you have BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Of course, that has also changed over time. It's now the more politically correct CE and BCE, before the Christian era and the Christian era. And that, again, has also been changed to... BCE, before the common era, and CE, the common era. Christ has been removed even from any of that reckoning. The point is, however, time did change. And for such a long time, and really even to this day, no check is valid, no document is considered legal, unless it bears testimony to the birth of Christ. In other words, you put a date on it. He divided time. Now, once again, we we don't exactly know when Jesus was born. We'll make mention of that more in the studies to come. We don't know the exact date. We don't know if it was December. In fact, most scholars agree it was probably, or in some cases, certainly not December. doesn't matter. What is important is that whatever date of the year Jesus came, it was the fullness of the time. It was the perfect time. Some people ask, well, why didn't Jesus come at any other time in history? Why not the Renaissance period or the end of the Roman Empire or even much later in modern times? You know, people say, well, if Jesus were here today, and they say what he would drive or wear or do. He didn't come at any of those times because any of those times weren't the right time. Jesus came at the fullness of the time. As you read through the New Testament, you you come up with this phrase that catches your attention. It's about timing or hour. I'll give you an example. Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. In John chapter 7, verse 30, they sought to take him by force. John says, but his hour had not yet come. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed. In other words, as you go through the New Testament, you get this idea that God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are operating at a very precise timetable. And they were. God is always on time. When I was a boy, my... Mom or dad would pick me up after school. And whenever I heard your dad will pick you up today after school, we had a school bus, but if I did sports, I'd stay longer. If I knew my dad was going to pick me up, I knew that I better bring a book or something to do because he'll be at least an hour late. He meant well. He was just a busy guy and he was notoriously late. God is never late. Peter said, Peter said, The Lord is never slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. God is on perfect time, the fullness of time. Or it could be translated, when the time was fulfilled. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, There are no loose threads in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped. No events are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. You see, folks, when Jesus Christ came, everything was perfect for the coming of the Messiah. Now let me unpack that a little bit for you and elaborate if I can. It was the fullness of time, religiously speaking... What I mean is, the Greeks and the Romans for years were polytheistic, they had worshipped many gods, but there came a time, and writers will even make note that around this time there was an emptiness that people in those religious systems were feeling, a spiritual void, like, these things I've been worshipping don't really answer the deep questions of life. I want something more. Then if you look in Israel itself among the Jews, what was happening? At the time of Jesus Christ, the Jews are back in their land, but for the last several years and at the time of Christ, it was occupied by a foreign power, the Romans. So here's a, here's a people who had been under foreign domination and subjugation and persecution and oppression by The Babylonians at one time, the Medo-Persians at another time, um, the Greeks, and now the Romans. It seemed like they never had their own system of government all to themselves and self-determination. They were always occupied and oppressed by someone else. Well, there was a small period of time. 165 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered a pig in the altar in Jerusalem and it so offended the Jews that they revolted, and the Maccabean revolt resulted in their own autonomy. They could self-govern, but that was just for a short period of time until once again they were occupied by the Romans. Well, also among the Jews, since the captivity, there arose an institution called the synagogue. You never read about a synagogue in the Old Testament. There weren't any. They developed in Babylon so that when Jews left captivity and populated different parts of the world, they met in synagogues where they read the Bible. And every synagogue had a copy of the scriptures. The scriptures were now accessible to the crowds through the reading of their rabbis. But it meant they could study and hear the promises of a coming Messiah, which they did so throughout the Greek and Roman pagan world and even among the religious Jews in Israel was this yearning for the Messiah it was the fullness of the time religiously it was also the fullness of time culturally culturally there could never have been a better time for Jesus to come there had been a guy called Alexander who thought he was really great In fact, he was called that by some later, Alexander the Great. And Alexander had a dream to make everybody in the world Greek. Now, he knew he couldn't do that naturally, so he thought, if I could give the greatest gift, which is the culture and the language of Greece, to the barbarians, I'll have done my job. And he did a pretty good job, because by the time of Christ... Just about everybody in the known world at that time spoke Greek. They had their own language, but they spoke Greek. So ideas could now be freely exchanged. It brought cohesion. It tied the world together. Also, Alexander was favorable toward the Jews and encouraged the Jews throughout the world to colonize, which they did. So now you've got pockets of Jews studying the Bible who are Greek-speaking Jews around the world. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little technical, so I beg your attention. Linguists have long noted that of all of the languages God could have revealed his mind through, he chose the language of Greek for the New Testament, which linguists say is probably the most complete, precise expression of any language. In Greek, there are nouns like there are in any language, And the nouns in Greek are masculine and feminine and neuter. And there's also adjectives in Greek. But the adjectives have to perfectly agree and match the nouns. Not just in gender, but in number and in case. And there are six precise cases of nouns and adjectives. Nominative, accusative, genitive, dative, locative, instrumental. Those are all precise Declensions of nouns in Greek. Push the nouns aside. Think of the verbs. The Greek verbs have mood, voice, and tense. The mood tells you if the action is a real action or a potential action or a commanded action. So you have an indicative, subjunctive, or imperative mood. The verbs also have voice. And they will tell you if it's an active, passive, or middle voice. It shows the relation of the subject to the action. Then the verbs have tense. Past, present, and future. But don't stop there. They will also tell you if it's a past action that is a completed action. Or if it's a present action, that is a completed action, or an ongoing action, or a sporadic action. And in some cases, there are verbs that mean the action is done, but the ramifications and the results go on and on and on. It's very, very precise. So culturally, it came at just the right time, and it's no accident, I believe, that the mind of God is conveyed to the world in the New Testament via the Greek language. It was also the fullness of time politically. Who was in charge of the world at the time of Jesus Christ? What empire ruled the world? Rome. And they were about at their height of power. And they brought a peace to the world known as the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. An enforced peace, but a peace. So they had stationed at different places along the road system guards, legions who would keep the peace. What that meant is volatile parts of the world like Asia Minor you could travel through and it would be stable because of the Pax Romana. On top of that, Rome built this incredibly um, extensive road system. Now, when I say Road system, I mean, they put stones and they actually hand paved roads that connected parts of the world. A total of 52,819 miles of roads. And you can still see many of them all over that part of the world today. So, what does that mean? It means that now you have a worldwide yearning, you have the gospel in a very precise language, and people can travel freely throughout the world. It was unprecedented. All of that never happened in line like that before. Also, it was the fullness of time prophetically. Prophetically. You know, the Jews had always believed in their Messiah. But there was this idea right before the coming of Jesus that all of these predictions would soon be fulfilled. That the Messiah would indeed come prophetically. I say the Jews always believed in the Messiah. They, they had a prayer that they would recite every day. It went something like this. I believe in the coming of Messiah, and even though he tarry, yet I will wait for him every coming day. However, though they always believed that, just prior to Jesus' arrival, there, there was an intensification of that expectation that the prophecies would be fulfilled. I'm going to quote to you from a book written by Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver. The name of the book is The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. Listen to him, quote, Prior to the first century CE, common era, the messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however... Especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. Listen to his concluding remarks in this paragraph. The Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century. When did Jesus come? The second quarter of the first century. Now, why did they think that? They thought that because of a couple of prophecies. Daniel, in his prophecy, Haggai, in his prophecy, both said the Messiah will come to the temple. A temple has to be built. There has to be one in existence. When the temple was rebuilt and all of those things were lining up, they thought, he's got to come. One rabbi who lived 50 years before Jesus Christ, called Rabbi Nehumias, said, the time fixed by Daniel for the Messiah could not go beyond 50 years. So all of this dialogue and writing was going on and the expectation that these things were going to happen. There, there, there's another prophecy i, I got to remind you of. It's one of my favorite. It goes all the way back to Genesis 49, verse 10, where Jacob is telling the future of all of the tribes of Israel. And he gets to the tribe of Judah which is the allotment where the temple was built down south. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And he says concerning Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet till Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now I'm going to read that again. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people scepter we all know what a scepter is it 's a pole right it's a it 's a symbol, an emblem of authority and identity but It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah till Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a Hebrew word that means the one to whom it belongs. And all of the ancient rabbis said, this must be a reference to the coming of Messiah. So they interpreted Genesis 49.10 to read, the national identity, which includes the right to enforce the law of Moses, will not depart from Judah until the Messiah shows up. Well, we have a problem Because Josephus tells us that in the first century, Rome removed the right of the people in Judah to enact capital punishment, which they had always had the right to, even by the Romans until that time. So it would mean that if somebody, in their view, committed blasphemy and the punishment according to the Old Testament law was stoning, they could not do that. That's why they had to go to Pilate to get Jesus crucified. That right had been taken away from them. Well, when that happened, the Talmud records that some of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling elders, paraded around Jerusalem with sackcloth and ashes on their heads. And they said, woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, but the Messiah had not come. Now, what they didn't know when they were parading was that a few miles north up in Nazareth, A young boy was ready to leave his father's carpentry shop and go to Galilee and select disciples and would soon manifest himself as Messiah. The scepter had departed from Judah, but Shiloh had come. Messiah had arrived. So we have a universal yearning, the gospel in precise language, ideas and people traveling freely and under peaceful conditions, and you have all the prophetic elements like dominoes lined up. So when Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, it really was full. That phrase is pregnant with meaning. Let's go on in our text, because we find out that Christmas not only came with precision, it came and it concerns a person. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, let me unpack that. Christmas concerns a person. It's not about a time. It's not about a celebration. It's really all about a person. And the person is described. He's called God's Son. God sent forth his Son. Now, we hear the term Son of God, and we think that, you know, it's been so watered down. People say, well, we're all sons of God. To the Jews of the first century, the idea of being the son of God meant you're God, you're deity, you're connected somehow to Father God. It means uh, oneness in essence and character. That's why the Sanhedrin pressed Jesus and they said, are you the son of God? And he said, I am. They said, well, we don't need any further proof. That's blasphemy. Let's kill him. That was a capital offense to them. He claimed to be the Son of God. He was the representation of the Father. Notice it says, God sent his Son. That's that's interesting language. The text doesn't say, and when the fullness of time has come, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. That suggests that he preexisted. If you're sent forth, you're sent forth from somewhere to somewhere. The idea is that Jesus had pre-existed with the father in glory and at a certain moment in time, i.e. Christmas, God sent forth his son as the ultimate representative of himself to the world. So whatever happened to Christmas, I'll tell you what happened to Christmas. Jesus Christ, the person of Christmas, has been rejected and he's been rejected because he perfectly represents holy God to this world. He's the person who is called the son of God. He goes on to describe God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now that is what we celebrate every December 25th, that, the birth of Christ. Here he was, heaven sent but earthly born, the incarnation of the God man. Jesus wasn't a good man, he was the God man. He was sent forth from the Father to the earth and at a certain moment in time was born of a woman and born under the law. So this suggests in one verse the dual nature of Christ. Fully God, sent forth from the Father, fully man, the incarnation. By the way, the world acknowledges this every year. They don't know it, but they sing songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Listen to the words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Jesus Christ, the son of the father in human flesh. Now, I know we hear that. I know we hear it every Christmas. And honestly, I think it goes right over our heads. I mean, we can't relate to that. Philip Yancey tries really hard to get us to. He says, imagine for a moment becoming a baby again. Now just do that. It's hard, isn't it? Imagine for a moment becoming a baby again. Giving up language and muscle coordination. The ability to eat solid food and control your bladder. God as a fetus, writes Yancey. Or, he continues, imagine yourself becoming a sea slug That analogy is probably closer. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took the form as a helpless, dependent newborn. So, at the perfect time, the perfect person came. That's what Paul is saying. At the perfect time, the perfect person came. And he was perfect because he was God. God. And man, as God, he was sinless, thus the sacrifice was pure and perfect. As man, he could suffer and die. And so he could take the hand of God being God and take the hand of man being man and bring God and man together. There had been such a gulf fixed between them. God, through Jesus Christ, brought us together. At the perfect time, the perfect person came. But there's a third, and we'll close with this. Not only is Christmas special because it came with precision, it concerns a person, but it contains a purpose. You want to know the purpose? You want to know the reason that there was Christmas? It's stated in verse 5. Here it is. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now that's the purpose of Christmas. Let me tell you what a couple of those words mean. Redeem, redeem. Uh, it's a word that means to uh, buy out or buy back. It's the word ex in the Greek. And ex agorazo means to go into the agora, the marketplace, and pay money for somebody who's a slave, and then give that slave his freedom and say, you can go. That's what it means to redeem. And then the word adoption, well, you know what that means. It means to take somebody who is uh, not your natural child and confer all of the rights of a natural born child on that adopted to give the status of sonship to someone who's not naturally born. So what's Christmas all about? It's all about redemption that leads to relationship. It's all about God figuring out a way to go into the slave market where we were shackled by sin and pay the price to give us our freedom so that all of those set free could become his sons and daughters. It's all about redemption that leads to relationship. How do you do it? How do you do it? What did he pay with? If redeem means to pay a price, what did he pay with? How much did you cost, God? Well, it's answered in Revelation 5. It's part of the song you and I will sing in heaven. To Jesus it is sung, You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. That's what it costs God to make you his daughter, to make you his son. Listen carefully. There is absolutely no salvation in the birth of Jesus Christ. You can celebrate that every year, every Christmas, put up a nativity set. I believe in Jesus, the baby Jesus. I love the baby Jesus. I don't want him to grow up, but I like that whole baby thing. And I have a nativity set in a Christmas tree. There is no salvation in his birth. There's also no salvation in his life. He lived the perfect life. And so many people say, well, I love Jesus Christ because he's a noble example and we love his example. There's no salvation in his example. There's no salvation in his perfect life. There's also no salvation in his words. You might love all the red words in the New Testament. I love those red letters. I read them all. I've memorized them all. There's no salvation in the words of Christ as wonderful and noble as they were. There is only salvation in His death and shedding of His blood. That baby became a baby. Christmas happened so the baby could grow up and die on a cross and shed His blood for the sins of the world. That's how salvation happens. And that's what Christmas is all about. Or to sum it up in one little statement, all that we've said so far. The Son of God... Became a man so that men and women could become children of God. The son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4. So, at the perfect time, the perfect person came with the perfect purpose. Adoption. Redemption. To get a whole bunch more kids. See, a lot of people say, what kind of a father would allow his son to go to a cross and die? One who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. The perfect time, the perfect person, the perfect purpose. Spiritual children. So whatever happened to Christmas? Well, I guess it depends who you are. If you're a son or a daughter of God, Christmas is all the time, all day long, every day. There's a reality of relationship. Let me tell you something very ironic. You know, here we are in America, getting rid of Christ, getting rid of Christmas, substituting it for happy holidays, seasons, greetings. You want to know something astonishing? I was in a country some years back, far away from here, where there were nativity sets Everywhere at Christmas time, and the words, Merry Christmas. And it struck me as odd because it wasn't a Christian country, it was a Muslim country. You know where it was? Iraq. I went to Baghdad and delivered some of these shoebox presents to kids, and everywhere I'd look, more than in America, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Nativity set. Jesus was more acknowledged. What if Christ had never come? There was a Christmas card some years ago that actually had, what if Christ had never come? And you open it up and it told the story of a, a minister who fell asleep in his study Christmas morning, preparing for the Christmas message. Just for a few moments he fell asleep and he dreamed. He dreamed that he walked out into his living room but there was no Christmas tree, there were no bells, there was no wreath, there was no Christ to gladden and comfort and save. He walked outside but there was no church spire pointing toward heaven no church bells announcing Christmas day he ran into his study all in a dream there were no books on his shelves about Christ he got a knock on the door from someone again in his dream said my mother is dying please comfort her come to her he goes great I've got I've got the perfect message and he ran to the woman's house and said I have some promises I want to share with you and he opened his Bible but it ended at Malachi There was no New Testament, no fulfillment of any promises, no savior. Now that's just a Christmas card and that's just a dream. But in our country, there's a reality of people getting rid of Christ himself. So you know what I suggest this Christmas? Turn up the volume just a little bit. Happy Merry Christmas. You can say happy holidays, but tell them what holiday you're wanting them to be happy about. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Announce it. Then don't stop there. Tell them about the Christ who came and why he came and what he wants to do with them. And by the way, if God's purpose is to redeem people, has his purpose been realized in your life? If Jesus came at the perfect time, maybe this is the perfect time for you the perfect season, the perfect year for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, thank you. Just like we sang moments ago, oh Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that at just the right time, when everything on the landscape globally was set up the way it should be, that you, Father, sent from eternity past at a moment in time through the birth of a virgin, birthing a son into the world, a Savior to be born. And that one person, that one Savior, the God-man, the sinless sacrifice, took our sin and died that we might have life the Son of God becoming a man so that men and women could become sons of God. Thank you, thank you, Lord. And I pray that we would not be only unashamed of that this Christmas, but filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)